1: You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast.
2: Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? I don't know why I'm laughing, but it's just, I've heard something that's made me laugh. And it's not even funny, so don't prepare yourself for something hilarious. But anyway, I was listening to an interview. And there were some people talking about their childhood and how their grandmother used to have lots of dolls in the attic and how they would go up and look at these dolls and get quite scared. And I just just remembered listening to something on the radio. This is going back some years where it was was a big thing that you could order a doll um, to be produced that looked identical to your child so that they would have a doll that looked like them and had the same... Facial features, hair colour, skin colour, every, you know, look like them. And I, th- I thought, well, that's all well and good, even though it cost a fortune at the time. It's all well and good, each to their own. But what do you do when that doll's no longer required? You can't really give it to a charity shop because you're giving something that looks like your child to the charity shop. You can't throw it away what do you do and when your child goes to university so say you've hung on to this doll all the time and then your child goes to university or goes moves away that i can't imagine they're going to want to take a look at likey with them. Um, it's not a great way to, to make new friends. So do you then have that doll at home as if the child is still home and end up talking to them? That's where I'm at today. I've not had any coffee so far. So I'm, I've gone from no coffee to imagining people keeping a look at doll at home while their child's at university and having conversations with them. So that's where I'm at. Where are you at? Are you OK? It's all well with you. Um, anyway, enough, enough of me. Uh, we've got a really, really good episode today. We've got a fascinating author interview, some great books to, to talk about. I think I should just really get stuck in, don't you? So the, um, the first book I'm going to be talking to you about, well, I'll, let let me just go through them. Philippa just go through all the books. So We've got Claire Askew, who has written Cover Your Tracks. Uh, we've got The Vow by Debbie Howells. We've got Planet Earth is Blue by Nicole Pantalikas. Um, we've got Call for the Dead by John le Carré and The Year of Living Danishly by Helen Russell. So quite, quite a smorgasbord, quite a collation there for you of different books, hopefully something that that you'll enjoy hearing about. But I want to get started first on the book Cover Your Tracks by Claire Askew, because we've got Claire to talk to, which is very exciting. So this is a crime series. Cover Your Tracks is the third in the series. Now, I haven't read the first two. Hold my hands up. And I just started on this one. I thought, well, I've got this book. Let's read it. Let's see what I think. And although I wish I had read the first two because she's a brilliant writer, it, it didn't affect my enjoyment of the book at all. She's very kind and sort of forgiving. To new readers and you don't feel that you can't enjoy the book as much. There are some books that I just can't enjoy as much because I, I know that there's a lot that I should know in terms of the background of these characters and I don't and so it just doesn't uh, it doesn't envelop me in a warm bookish hug whereas this one did despite the fact that there are murders but there we go. So let's read the blurb of this book. Uh, What if I told you, he said, that I believe my mother's life to be in danger? Robertson Bennett returns to Edinburgh after a 25 year absence in search of his parents and his inheritance. But both have disappeared. A quick, routine police check should be enough. And Detective Inspector Helen Birch has enough on her plate trying to help her brother Charlie after an assault in prison. But all her instincts tell her not to let this case go. And so she digs george and fanny macdonald were together for a long time no one can ever really know the secrets kept between husband and wife but as birch slowly begins to unravel the truth terrible crimes start to rise to the surface um i i loved it she is definitely an author I'm going to be following from from this point on. And shame on me for not reading her <laughs> books before. Um, I thought it was a really good book. I loved the female characters in. They're not just token females. They're gutsy, strong women that you would want on your side, on your team. And that's what I like. Um, I like it, it's a slightly different sort of crime book. And I'm definitely not going to give anything away. Um, but just this chap coming in, you know, presenting himself straight away, saying that he can't find his parents and you don't know w- why he wants to know. And does he want to know for the wrong reasons and what's happened? So it it it, it is a different book. And I applaud that. And I thought it was it was beautifully written. Um, just a great book, a good crime book, um, well paced, good twists and turns, good revelations. Um, And as I say, with characters that you really get on board with within the space of a book, you're 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 on with these characters. That's it. Um, I'm in seatbelts on, plugged in, ready for for future journeys. So I I probably would go back and read the first two. I think I would like to do that just because I think she's a very accomplished author um, and I'll certainly be looking out for the next one. But let's talk to Claire. Let's talk to Claire and find out more about her writing. And this lovely, lovely book, so Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Well, this book, cover your tracks. I'm holding it up. I don't know why I always like to hold it up. I just thought <laughs> it was um it it was brilliant. It's the first one of yours i've I've read, and yet I didn't feel. Um, held back for the th- for the third book, you know, I didn't feel that I had to stop reading this one and immediately go back and start. I'm sure there's gems in those, but you're very good at helping the reader just um submerge themselves in in this story. What gave you the idea for for this one for cover your tracks?
3: Well, I was having a a conversation with my mum who is really into her genealogy so she's done my family tree in all directions way 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 back and and she has loads of lever arch files full of stuff about family tree um and she was talking about this this sticking point that she'd come to with this man one of my ancestors who she was trying to find in censuses and he would appear some years and not other years um and she eventually after a lot of digging discovered that this was because he had an alias And some years he would tell the census counter people his given name and other years he would tell them his kind of nickname or alias. And once she discovered that, she was able to find loads more information about him because when she looked for his alias, she found all sorts of extra stuff. And that gave me the idea of, oh wow, what if there was somebody who had a different name that they used or who changed their name for kind of nefarious purposes? um what could I do with that and so it was actually that the the kernel of the idea of the book came out of that conversation about names and paper trails basically
2: so is it the is it sort of the the crime the situation that comes before the characters as the first gems of a story I think so um
3: it's it's usually a question that that comes yes. first so uh like the question in in my second book what you pay for was is it still possible in this day and age of you know cctv and online banking and social media and stuff is it still possible to completely disappear and leave no trace of yourself um so that was that was the question i was interested in answering um and then it kind of grew arms and legs and became is it possible to do that without committing a crime <laughs> you know so the question kind <laughs> of deepens as you go on um and then the question with this one was can you it's sort of a lot of a lot of crime novels I think want to know can you get away with can you get away with murder is kind of the the most common one but sure. in this case it's it's can you get away with all sorts of things you know how much can you get away with by just sort of evading mm. the paper trail you know mm. um and so there are several characters in this book who have more than one name without without spoiling things there there's a lot of alias having and a lot of kind of hiding in plain sight going on yes um and so yeah that was that was at the center of the book and then the the characters sort of I think got, got built on top of on top of those ideas basically
2: and what I loved about it is the very sort of punchy female characters you've you've got in there as well they're they're not token females at all I thought they're really strong women which is just a joy to to read was that a deliberate move from you
3: yeah definitely I mean I I am very keen to write feminist crime fiction intersectional feminist crime fiction Mm. um and so I have this uh female detective inspector helen birch who i have sort of deliberately made as as real a woman as as three-dimensional a woman as i possibly Mm. can because i kind of created her in response to seeing um these female police characters in crime fiction who were obviously themselves a response to kind of the macho uh like sort of noiry crime detective who's very yeah. sort of hard bitten and always has a terrible marriage and is an alcoholic yeah. and has affairs and all this kind of thing <laughs> and you you could see crime writers going i want to i want to do something about that and then creating these female police characters who were you know 10 times smarter than the men and always 10 steps ahead of everybody else and and kind of so good at their job that they were almost like superheroes And I thought I want to temper that a bit because nobody's really like that. (laughs) Um, So, so Birch is a very good policewoman. She's very dedicated. She's maybe a bit too dedicated. She gets a bit too involved in things. Mm -hmm. Um, But she also makes a lot of mistakes and spills coffee on herself and, and she can't (laughs) parallel park very well. And, (laughs) you know, I I kind of wanted her to be sort of a a very good police officer, but also just a sort of normal woman um, doing a very hard job. So, yeah, it was a very deliberate um, attempt to depict real strong women but not not superheroes. You
2: know? But equally she's she's someone I would want on my side. I mean she's yeah, I just thought she fantastic. If if I needed a, a a DI, I'd I'd like it to be her. I thought she was Oh, that's a really nice video. Yeah. <laughs> um and the the writing, I I just felt it was done so meticulously. Um, how long does it take for you to write the first draft of a book like this?
3: So first draft is usually about eight months Um, because I'm a crime novelist. I'm sort of settled into the rhythm of writing a book a year. So I start in January, finish in August. That's my first draft. And then September to December is um, redrafting and editing and and all of that stuff. Um, So it doesn't take a desperately long time. but I am quite meticulous and I think that's because I was a poet for 10 years before I wrote any crime fiction. Yeah. Um, and so obviously I have that kind of, I, I lean towards doing a lot of editing as I go and, yes. you know, being very picky about
2: yeah. my so every, verbs and things. <laughs> every word has its place, mm-hmm. uh, is mm-hmm. important. Have you ever thought of doing um, a crime verse novel at all? Because verse novels are really coming into their own now. I'd love to read a crime one
3: yeah people ask me this all the time you know oh. have you found a way to sort of fuse together the poetry and yeah. and the crime and people also ask me are you going to write crime themed poems um and i'm 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 percolating on the idea i the idea of a verse novel for all that i am a also a poet is is terrifying and I'm in awe of anyone who who does that um, but I'm I, you know I'm thinking about it the idea is there people keep asking for it so maybe one day I will actually do it I don't know we'll
2: see <laughs> we'll see yes now these books are set in Edinburgh where uh-huh. you're sort of normally based does that help you with the story or does it hinder you because then you have to be so factually accurate about you know it's not a made-up place
3: mm. Um I, I think it helps when I when I wrote the first draft of my first novel All the Hidden Truths it was actually set in a kind of any town Scotland because it's about a school shooting and so such a horrible crime I kind of thought I don't I don't want to put that anywhere specific um and I was advised by an early reader that actually no people will respond better to the to the book if they can have a kind of frame of reference and know where it is so I then started to redraft the entire thing, writing it in Edinburgh with all the streets that I knew really well, and and so on. And I suddenly realised, actually, yes, this is this is part of it. You know, it, it, people, I need this. I need to know where things are happening and have a specific idea in my head. So it it helps me, I think. Um, and I don't feel too daunted by the the sort of factual accu- accuracy element because I've lived in Edinburgh for 16 years and you know, for most of that time, I haven't had a car. So I've just always walked around taking public transport. So I feel like I know Edinburgh really, mm-hmm. really well. Um, and it's kind of nice, actually, to be able to put in little details that are very much things that only locals know. And I like putting sending birch out to bits of the city that tourists don't go to yeah. so that people who've never been to Edinburgh before can see that actually, as well as the Royal Mile, we've also got you know, really horrendous traffic lights that don't, that never yeah. work and, you know, awful yeah. roundabouts and, and as well as all the nice twee, uh touristy, Gothic architecture, all that kind of stuff. We've also got, you know, the bypass. Um, <laughs> so it's quite nice showing the other side of Edinburgh that most people don't see.
2: I, and I really enjoyed all the sort of twists and turns and revelations. I mean, the whole, whole story, how do you plot that out initially? Are you, are you somebody with a whiteboard and, and writing different things down? Or do you have post-it notes? Or is it just you get in there and you're one of these pantsers? How do, how do you go about it? Okay, so I
3: started as a pantser on the first novel, and it didn't work. Um, I wrote myself <laughs> into a, a place where I realised I had to get get a handle on on the plots and write a plot document kind of retroactively um so ever since then I've used save the cat which I know quite a lot of novelists use even though it's a screenwriting book um just to get the as as Blake Snyder calls them the the beats of the story and then I build everything on top from there and I do it all longhand in a notebook so I do anything that's not literally the the writing of the novel Um, so notes and everything uh, in in a notebook and it's very scribbly and probably anyone looking at it who wasn't me wouldn't understand what any of it, <laughs> it means but I have this kind of strange looking uh, document that I refer back to throughout and it just keeps me on track basically.
2: Does that come from being a poet do you think that the longhand?
3: Yeah definitely I've, yeah. I've, I've always written um, poet poems in longhand form and I usually will write a first draft and then write a second draft and so you know I'll I'll write them out four or five times uh in longhand and only then will I type them up when they're kind of done and obviously writing a novel longhand I know there are still some people who exist who do that but it's too daunting a task but I kind of think my books might even be better if I were to write them longhand because it feels like the most natural uh way to go for me
2: it must be hard writing a series because as you're writing you must have these sort of thoughts and inspirations and then think oh no I'm gonna have to hold that back that could go in you know the next book is it a bit like sort of having to you know make a meal last a week you know make these different ideas last a series um
3: kind of yes (laughs) I certainly with the first book I had loads of things that I wanted to put in um because I think when you're writing your very first book and you don't know yet if it's going to be published or not Mm -hmm. you want to get all the ideas you've ever had in there (laughs) um and Mm -hmm. so I had to learn to go no this is going you know once I figured out it was going to be a series I had to learn that not everything had to be in that first book um but I've kind of deliberately done some things with Birch's life that mean that I can spend a bit of time letting people get to know her and and her story can Mm -hmm. evolve so for example there's charlie's storyline her brother who i won't say too much about because if you haven't read what you pay for then there will be spoilers Mm -hmm. but he i've set him up to be in one place for a long time (laughs) Um, and so there's lots of stuff that can come out of of their relationship um
0: because he is
3: where he is you know um and Yeah and and things like um, Birch has a a sort of sidekick character Amy Cato who at the moment is Mm -hmm. a detective constable but she's very bright and very good so I suspect she will be getting a promotion at some point as the books go on you know so there's there's Mm -hmm. things like that that I'm able to to develop and I'm quite looking forward to developing and in this book Cover Your Tracks Birch um, her relationship with her father kind of comes into the into sharp focus yes. it's sort of in the background of this crime she's dealing with with her dad who's a bit of a pain in the bomb basically <laughs> um and and at the end of the book it's it's a new it's sort of a new start for her relationship with her dad and so that's something I'm looking forward to to looking at in future books as well
2: clearly I mean you've got a huge talent for this but clearly you enjoy it as well but what part do you enjoyed the most? Is it the coming up with the initial ideas, the plotting, the first draft, the typing the end in? What
0: I
3: just I my favorite thing is is being in the middle of it and having had a really good day of writing. <sighs> that's that's like the best feeling ever. Um is, you know, where you've just you've just had a really good day and you've had sort of flow as they call it. Um and you look back at what you've done and you think yeah that was a good day's work um because I think a lot of people like writing the end but whenever I've written the end I think now I have to do editing (laughs) which is my least favorite bit (laughs) Um, so getting to the end is always like oh now the hard bit starts (laughs) so so it's I like being in the middle of it and I like feeling like oh yeah I'm cooking on gas here I know where I'm going I've got a plan for tomorrow you know that's that's the best feeling not every day is like that
2: no but but clearly (laughs) when they are they're good they're good you're a writer for sure was it easy to get published when you'd written and completed your first book how how was that process
3: I had an interesting process in that um all the hidden truths won a prize it won the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize in 2016 Mm. as a work in progress and part of that was getting signed by an agent, which was amazing. Mm. Um, And I then worked with that agent on the manuscript for about eight, nine months, because it was nowhere near finished. Um, And she was such a great early reader, and she gave me loads and loads of useful stuff to do. And she really helped me to kind of turn the book around. But ultimately, we had a difference of opinion about how the book should end. uh, And we ended up kind of having an amicable breakup because we just got to stalemate where she she was saying that she kind of wouldn't send the book out on submission with the ending that it had and I was saying this is the ending I've this you know this oh. is the the kind of island I've been swimming towards through all this yes. dark water for months I'm not I'm not changing it um and so that was quite scary because I I thought that because I'd signed with her I I had made a big step towards publication and then making the decision to take that step back again was quite terrifying Mm. and at that point I thought I was going to put the novel in a drawer and write another one I genuinely didn't think it was Mm. going to get anywhere Um, but fortunately I have a really good friend in the form of the uh, another Scottish novelist Helen Sedgwick who happened to be around at the time and came and sort of picked me up off the kitchen floor where I was crying about my novel and said you can't just send it to one agent and then go right that's game over Mm -hmm. um so she made me send it to another couple of agents and fortunately one of them picked it up Um, and then because I'd done so much work on it with my first agent it was basically ready to go on submission Um, and then it it quite quickly found a publisher which was really really nice but yeah I did have that kind of horrible feeling of have I blown it you know was that mm-hmm. my chance and I've and I've blown it so so it was a really interesting uh couple of months <laughs> kind of waiting to see yes. if if I if another agent would be interested or or whatever so yeah um but I mean I'm, I've I've now published three books with Hodder and Stoughton and I'm contracted for another three and they're just fantastic you know I'm in such a good place mm-hmm. my editor Joe is is just so great so yeah I'm chuffed I'm chuffed with how it's gone in the end
2: so, so it was touch yes. and
3: go for a minute there <laughs> it,
2: it came all right in the end but like a good crime novel yeah, with yeah. Some, some twists and turns yes. along, along yes. the way <laughs> so what what I was going to say what's next last question you know is, mm. is the next one in the series presumably
3: yes yeah so I'm because it's the autumn I'm now in the midst of editing my favorite bit (laughs) (laughs) so I've just I just yesterday finished my structural edit on the fourth book Mm -hmm. Um, and so it will go into copy edit over the next couple of weeks I guess and and then it will be out in August next year and we think it's going to be called A Matter of Time Um, Mm. that's the, the working title that we've got at the moment things change obviously but I think it's going to be called A Matter of Time so that's August
2: 2021. Very exciting. We'll come round soon, soon enough. It's very cheesy mm-hmm, to say. So only think. a matter of time. <laughs> but there we go. <laughs> Sorry, scraping the bottom of the that's barrel right. for that one. I, I suspect. I suspect I'll get a lot of that with yes. this title. So don't worry. <laughs> yes. At least I'm first in there. <laughs> but that's yes, constant. yes. <laughs> but Claire, thank you so much for talking to me. I've really appreciated your time. The book is astonishing and I can't wait to read more. Oh,
3: thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: Well, wasn't that interesting? It was so interesting to talk to Claire Um, about that and uh, can't can't wait to read the next one. But anyway, I've waffled on enough about Cover Your Tracks by Claire Askew. Let's talk about The Vow. Uh, Now, The Vow has just recently come out. It's in paperback um, by Debbie Howells. And uh, the blurb is this. You should never break a promise. Two weeks before her wedding, a stranger stops Amy in the street and warns her that she's in danger. That night, Matt, her fiancé, doesn't come home. Desperate, Amy calls the police. But when Matt fails to emerge, she's forced to call off her wedding day. As the mystery surrounding Matt's disappearance grows, Amy's daughter Jess begins to form suspicions of her own. Why has a mother always been so secretive about Matt's past? Why has Amy promised never to leave their house? And when a second woman reports Matt missing, will anyone be able to piece together the truth? The wedding never happened, but the funeral might. I loved this book as well. I really enjoyed it. It's very different to cover your tracks. I would say the vow is um it's 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 obviously a crime read, but it's an easier read. It's a quicker read. Um it's one you can zip through. Um, And yes, it's like cover your tracks. It's got lots of twists and turns and revelations. I think they're a great combination, the two of them, because it's got there's one that um, requires more dedication to it and got uh, some really strong characters and strong storylines. And the other one um, is sort of dialed down a bit from that, but nothing wrong with that. It's a really good read. It's something that you can sit down and get through in a weekend in a day um and really enjoy it and have that oh I didn't think that was going to happen moments that that we all like to have. We like to be surprised well, I certainly do. I always think it's a shame when when you've guessed the end and it and it turns out to be correct so and I had seen a lot of this on social media there'd been a lot of talk about this book there's a, a quite um a, a bright cover well it's not bright it's just memorable um it's in red you've got this picture of a flower now don't ask me what flower it is it's white it looks a bit like a tulip i don't know it's not a rose is it anyway it's a white flower and there's blood dripping from it so you've got this red cover white flower blood dripping from it and then the writing the vow two weeks until the wedding then the groom disappears on the front of it. Um, And yeah, I thought it was a really, really good book. One I would um, recommend. And uh, one, as I say, that you can get through quite easily. And at the moment, if you're finding it hard to sometimes focus on books, this could be one that you just find easier to to get into, to pull you into the story and keep you guessing. And so that's The Vow by Debbie Howells. The next one is called Planet Earth is Blue. And the author is uh, Nicole Pantalekas, And this is another book, a mid-grade book, that talks about the subject of autism. You remember last week I sort of introduced this subject. Um, So let's read the blurb. Nova and her big sister Bridget love astronomy and they plan to watch the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger together. But Bridget has disappeared and now Nova is in a new foster home. Teachers and foster families have always believed that Nova isn't as smart as other kids. Only Bridget knows how wrong they are. Nova is autistic. Speaking is hard for her. But now as the liftoff draws closer, others begin to see how intelligent Nova is. And every day she's counting down to the launch and to the moment when she'll see Bridget again. This brilliant debut promotes empathy kindness and hope in the face of challenges. Readers will discover that Nova is an explorer who journeys far beyond others assumptions. Um, I thought this was a very powerful book. Very good. It's 230 pages long, so it's a bit longer than the previous book. I like that it's interspersed. You've got these chapters where you're looking at how uh, Nova's coping and the views of those around her, and then you have almost these diary entries, these letters that Nova writes to Bridget, um, and that's very telling as well. Um, so I like that. It's it's easy to read. In some places, it's a hard subject to see how teachers and professionals, anybody can can get it wrong with autism, cannot react well and treat that person well. Um, so it's quite educational. Um, it's a book with the twists and turns that that I love to have and a real gosh moment uh, at the end. Um, I, yeah, I thought it was really good. Now, when I say mid-grade, somebody did contact me about this and said, oh, my goodness. Kerfuffle. They use the word kerfuffle. I love that. Um, why Why do you say mid-grade? What does that mean? Well, it, it's, it's a difficult one because there are some books that are classified as mid-grade that I think are more sort of teenage books. But mid-grade typically is sort of between eight years and 12 years. Um, but don't take that. I mean, I read mid-grade. Clearly, I have read mid-grade because I'm talking to you about it. So well done, Philippa, for stating the obvious. But do you know what I mean? It, just because something is in an age group doesn't mean you can or can't read it if you're in a different age group. It's just finding a subject that you're interested in or that you enjoy and a book that makes a difference. Um, Either it sort of takes you out of life or occupies you or makes you feel better or um just really interests you with a dynamic story. So Yes, that that's typically it. But again, if you've got a child who's in that age group, don't automatically think if if a book is in that age group, it's it's OK for them to read. It you, might be something that they struggle with. It might be something that they find frightening, all sorts of things. So, yes, um, to the the person who messaged me with the word kerfuffle. It's brilliant. And that is what I mean by mid-grade. So, so sorry about that one. Now, the next book we're going to talk about is a John le Carre. Um, And I thought, well, I haven't I haven't really read John le Carre books for a long time. So I thought it would be interesting to do that. Um, I needed an audiobook to listen to. I've got a lot of dog walking to do. And there was one that was under five hours. So I'm afraid I thought, tick, that works for me. It's a short one. I can just see if I enjoy the book still um, and get into it. So this one, Call for the Dead, is his first novel. Um, Let me let me read you the blurb. Um, This is uh, John Le Carre's first novel, which introduced his most famous character, George Smiley. Smiley is one of the most brilliantly realised characters in British fiction. Bespectacled, tubby, eternally middle-aged and deceptively ordinary, he has a mind like a steel trap and is said to possess the cunning of Satan and the conscience of a virgin. This novel, set in London and in the late 1950s, finds Smiley engaged in the humdrum job of security vetting. But when a foreign office civil servant commits suicide after an apparently unproblematic interview... Smiley is baffled, refusing to believe that Fennon shot himself soon after making a cup of cocoa and asking the exchange to telephone him in the morning. Smiley decides to investigate, only to uncover a murderous conspiracy with its roots in his own secret wartime past. I enjoyed it. It definitely made me think that I need to read or listen to more of John Currie's books. It reminded me that they can be quite technical and therefore they're ones that you have to be ready to just immerse yourselves in and not for one when you're having a bad day. Let's put it like that. Um, it was uh, narrated by Michael Jaston, who had a brilliant way of doing it. Lovely sort of it's almost like listening to traditional Um, Radio 4 clipped English tone. Um, I thought it was good. It had the revelation moments. Um, it, It didn't grip me as much as some of the more modern crime and thrillers that I read, but it did Engaged me so much that I thought, yes, I want to read and listen to more of John le Carré's book. So I think it did the job. So if you're not sure whether John le Carré is something for you, maybe you've watched some of the programmes on TV or the films and you think, well, I like that, but would I like the, the actual books themselves, the stories? Or if you're a John le Carré fan, but you maybe haven't read the, the first one, Call for the Dead, then it's a great way to either dip your toe into the John le Carré water um, or just to read something else that he's that he's written. And because it's so short um, as an audio book, I imagine it's quite a short book as well. So that's Call for the Dead by John le Carré. And then we come to the very last book, which is very exciting. So this was a book club choice. Um, and as I record this, we haven't actually spoken. We haven't met. Uh, well, met. Her. We haven't in, met on Zoom yet. Oh, my goodness. I have to tell you that the last time this book club met on Zoom, there were thunderstorms. And we're all based in one county, but we are based in very different parts of the county. And it was so interesting who was getting more scared about some sort of electrical power charge? <laughs> you know, you one of us would have so much lightning by their house, and you could hear it and and see it on on the Zoom. And then just a few minutes later, someone else who's maybe thirty miles away would have it at, at their house as well. And then the rain would come at one house and move to another. It, it was the weirdest thing. We we did have to stop that Zoom call a little earlier than planned because I was slightly concerned that someone was going to get electrocuted. And I thought that's not a great way to end a book club Zoom call. So that's the most unique um, Zoom call I've had. And to be able to track the very fast progress of uh, of electric storm, of thunder and lightning anyway, um, was was really intriguing. But anyway, so. The the book that was chosen is The Year of Living Danishly. I have heard a lot about this book. It's one people refer to and talk about how it would be great to go and live in Denmark and and all that's good about it. So when this book came up, I thought, great. Yeah, I'd I'd like to read this. Um, And I actually primarily listened to the audio book of this. Um, I'll read you the blurb. When she was suddenly given the opportunity of a new life in rural Jutland, journalist and archetypal Londoner Helen Russell discovered a startling statistic. The happiest place on earth isn't Disneyland, but Denmark, a land often thought of by foreigners as consisting entirely of long, dark winters, cured herring, Lego and pastries. What is the secret to their success? Are Happy Danes born or made? Helen decides there is only one way to find out. She will give herself a year trying to uncover the formula for Danish happiness. From childcare, education, food and interior design, to taxes, sexism and unfortunate predilection for burning witches. The year of living dangerously. Danishly, Philippa, come on, the year of living Danishly is a funny, poignant record of a journey that shows us where the Danes get it right, where they get it wrong, and how we might just benefit from living a little more Danishly ourselves. Helen Russell is a journalist and former editor of Marie Claire Online. She now lives in rural Jutland and works as a Scandinavia correspondent for The Guardian, as well as writing a column on Denmark for The Telegraph. Well, we've had all the books about going to live in France, you know, a year in Provence and all of that, that then um, just became overdone because so many people were doing it. Well, I haven't heard of anyone uh, write about moving to Denmark or certainly as successfully as, as Helen has done. It's very interesting. There are parts that make you think, oh, yes, that's what we need to change in England. It makes you think about... Um, the community, about the amount of tax that people pay, about people's social standing and whether or not it's important. Even things like children's birthday parties, I found that they seem to have a really good way of of dealing with it and just taking more time um, to be at home and uh, just quality of life quality of life, I thought. So that was interesting for me. um, I think a quarter or a third of the book would have been all that I needed to take everything away that I have done. And so there were some parts where I just thought, oh, I've heard enough of this now. So maybe it's a book or an audio book to dip into at times. It's not one that you have to read to completion. And if you're a person that likes to have a few different books on the go, then I think this would fit into it very well. Um, It's definitely worth a read because I think most people could take something and learn something from this book. Um, I'd be interested to know if the rate of people moving to Denmark has increased because of this. Because a lot of it does seem quite idyllic, um, not all of it, but it does. So that would be that would be interesting to see. Um, but yes, I thought it was a a really really interesting book, and I'm looking forward to talking to the book group as a as a whole to see what they think. So we've covered quite a few books. We've covered we've covered. Cover your tracks. Well done, Philippa. Um, By Claire Askew. And we've spoken to Claire, which was absolutely brilliant. Uh, We've talked about The Vow by Debbie Howells. We've talked about Planet Earth is Blue uh, by Nicole Pantelikas. Um, We've talked about The era of Living Danishly by Helen Russell. And we've talked about the John le Carré book Call for the Dead. So I think that's quite a lot, really. I think I should stop talking and let you get on. I do have a book box to unbox, which I am quite keen to do. But I think I'm going to leave that till next time. So you look after yourselves. We've got um, a brilliant author to talk to next week. So I can't wait for that. And, And I'll speak to you again very soon. Look after yourselves now. Take care. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books. Said no one ever.